0: part one of book three chapter nineteen of these train by arnold bennett this LibriVox recording is in the public domain recording by simon evers part one of chapter nineteen death and burial one albert benbow was at the front door edwin curbed the expression of his astonishment hello albert oh you aren't gone to bed not likely come in what's up Albert, with the habit of one instructed never to tread, actually, on a doorstep, lest it should be newly whitened, stepped straight on to the inner mat. He seemed excited, and Edwin feared that he had just learnt of Auntie Hamp's illness, and had come in the middle of the night ostensibly to make inquiries, but really to make a grievance of the fact that the Bembo's had been kept in ignorance. He could already hear Albert demanding, Why have you kept us in ignorance? It was quite a Bembo phrase. Edwin shut the door and shut out the dark and winded limps of the outer world, which had emphasised for a moment the tense seclusion of the house. "'You've heard, of course, about the accident to Ingpen,' said Albert. His hands were deep in his overcoat pockets. The collar of the thin, rather shabby overcoat was turned up. An old cap adhered to the back of his head. While talking, he slowly lifted his feet one after the other, as though desiring to get warmth by stamping, but afraid to stamp in the night. "'No, I haven't,' said Edwin, with false calmness. "'What accident?' "'The perspective of events seemed to change. "'Auntie Hamp's illness to recede, "'and a definite and familiar apprehension to be supplanted "'by a fear more formidable because it was a fear of the unknown.' "'It was all on the late special signal,' Benbow protested, "'as if his pride had been affronted. "'Well, I haven't seen the signal. What is it?' "'Edwin thought. Is somebody else dying too?' "'Flywheel-broke!' "'Inkpen was inspecting the slip-house next to the engine-house. "'Part of the flywheel came through and knocked a loose nut off the blunger, "'right into his groin.' "'Whose works?' Albert answered in a light tone. "'Mine.' "'And how's he going on?' "'Well, he's had an operation, and Sterling's got the nut out. "'Of course they don't know what it was till they got it out. "'And now Inkpen wants to see you at once. That's why I've come.' "'Where is he?' "'At the hospital.' Hill. "'No, the Clowes, Small Road, you know.' Is he going on all right? He's very weak. He can scarcely whisper. But he wants you. I've been up there all the time, practically. Edwin seized his overcoat from the rack. I had a rare job finding ye. Bengbo went on. I would no idea you weren't all at home. I wake up most of Halton Street over it. It was Smith's next door, came out at last, and told me Mrs. and George had gone to London and you were over here. I wonder who told them, Edwin mumbled, as Albert helped him with the overcoat. I must tell Maggie, we've got some illness here, you know. Oh? Yes, auntie, very sudden. Seemed to get worse tonight. Fact is, I was sitting up while Maggie has a bit of a sleep. She was going to send round for Clara in the morning. I'll just run up to Maggie. Having thus, by judicious misrepresentation, deprived the Bembos of a grievance, Edwin moved towards the stairs. Maggie, dressed, already stood at the top of them, alert, anxious, adequate. Albert, oh, is that you?' After a few seconds of quick murmured explanation, Edwin and Albert departed, and as they went, Maggie, in a voice doubly harassed, but cheerful and oily, called out after them how glad she would be, and what a help it would be, if Clara could come round early in the morning. The small Klaus Hospital was high up in the town opposite the park, near the station and the railway cutting, and not far from the Moorthorn Ridge. Behind its bushes, through which the wet night wind swished and rustled, it looked still very new and red in the fitful moonlight, and indeed it was scarcely older than the park and swing baths close by, and a bursley had not yet lost its naive pride in the possession of a hospital of its own. Not much earlier in the decade, this town of 35,000 inhabitants had had to send all its cases five miles in cabs to Parr Hill Infirmary. Albert Bembo, with the satisfaction of a habitue, led Edwin round through an aisle of bushes to the side entrance for outpatients. He pushed open a dark door, walked into a gaslit vestibule, and, with the assured gestures of a proprietor, invited Edwin to follow. A fat woman, who looked like a charwoman, made tidy, sat in a Windsor chair in the vestibule close to a radiator. She signed to Albert as an old acquaintance to go forward, and Albert nodded in the manner of one conspirator to another. What struck Edwin? was that this middle-aged woman showed no sign of being in the midst of the unusual. She was utterly casual and matter-of-fact, and Edwin had the sensation of moving in a strange, nocturnal world, a world which had always coexisted with his own, but of which he had been till then most curiously ignorant. His passage through the town, listening absently to Albert's descriptions of the structural damage to Inkpen and to the works, and Albert's defence against unbrought accusations, had shown him... That the silent streets lived long after midnight in many a lighted window here and there and in the movements of mysterious but not furtive frequenters and he seemed to be an impinging upon half-veiled enigmas of misfortune or of love at the other end of the thread of adventure was his aunt's harsh bedroom with maggie stolidly watching the last ebb of senile vitality and at this end was the hospital full of novel and disturbing vibrations and tertius ingpen "'waiting to impose upon him some charge or secret. "'At the top of the naked stairs, which came after a dark corridor, "'was a long, naked, resounding passage "'lighted by a tiny jet at either end. "'A cough from behind a half-open door came echoing out "'and filled the night and the passage, "'and then at another door appeared a tall, thin, fair nurse in blue and white, "'with thin lips and a slight smile, hard and disdainful. "'Here's Mr. Clayhang on us,' muttered Albert Benbow, taking off his cap, with a grimace at once sycophantic and grandiose. Edwin imagined that he knew by sight everybody in the town above a certain social level, but he had no memory of the face of the nurse. "'How is he?' he asked awkwardly, fingering his hat. The girl merely raised her eyebrows. "'You mustn't stay,' said she, in a mincing but rather loud voice that matched her lips. "'Oh, no, I won't.' "'I suppose I'd better stop outside,' said Ibebbo. Edwin followed the nurse into a darkened room, of which the chief article of furniture appeared to be a screen. Behind the screen was a bed, and on the bed in the deep obscurity lay a form under creaseless bedclothes. Edwin first recognised Inkpen's beard, then his visage very pale and solemn, and without the customary spectacles. Of the whole body, only the eyes moved.' As Edwin approached the bed, he cast across Inkpen a shadow from the distant cast. "'Well, old chap,' he began with constraint, "'this is a nice state of affairs. How are you getting on?' Inkpen's inquiring, apprehensive, dumb glance silenced the clumsy greeting. It was just as if he had rebuked. "'This is no time for howdy-doos.' When he had apparently made sure that Edwin was Edwin, Inkpen turned his eyes to the nurse. "'Water!' he whispered. The nurse shook her head. Not yet, she replied with tepid indifference. Ingpen's eyes remained on her a moment and then went back to Edwin. Ed, he whispered, and gazed once more at the nurse, who, looking away from the bed, did not move. Edwin bent over the bed. Ed, Ingpen demanded, speaking very deliberately. Go to my office. In the top drawer of the desk in the bedroom there's some photos and letters. Burn them. Before morning. Understand? Edwin was profoundly stirred. In his emotion was pride at Ingpen's trust, astonishment at the sudden, utterly unexpected revelation, and the thrill of romance. He thought The man is dying. And the tragic sensation of the vigil of the nocturnal world almost overcame him. Yes, he said. Anything else? No. What about keys? Inkpen gave him another long glance. Trousers. Where are his clothes? Edwin asked the nurse, whose lips were ironic. Oh, they'll tell you downstairs. you better go now. As he went from the room, he could feel Inkpen's glance following him. He raged inwardly against the callousness of the nurse. It seemed monstrous that he should abandon Inkpen for the rest of the night, defenceless, to the cold tyranny of the nurse, whose power over the sufferer was as absolute as that of an eastern monarch who had never heard of public opinion, over the meanest slave. He could not bear to picture to himself Inkpen and the nurse alone together. "'Isn't he allowed to drink?' he could not help murmuring at the door. "'Yes, at intervals.' He wanted to chastise the nurse. He imagined an endless succession of sufferers under her appalling, inimical nonchalance. Who had allowed her to be a nurse? Had she become a nurse in order to take some needed revenge against mankind?' And then he thought of Hilda's passionate, succouring tenderness when he himself was unwell. He had not been really ill for years. What was happening to Inkpen could never happen to him, because Hilda stood everlastingly between him and such a horror. He considered that a bachelor was the most pathetic creature on the earth. He was drenched in the fearful, wistful sadness of all life. The sleeping town, Auntie Hamp's on the edge of eternity. Minnie trembling at the menaces of her own body. Hilda lying in some room that he had never seen. An ink pen. Soon over, observed Albert Bembo in the corridor. Ebbin could have winced at the words. How do you think he is? asked Albert. Don't know, Ebon replied. Look here, I've got to get a hold of his clothes downstairs. Oh, that's his, is it? Pocket book? Keys, eh? two. Edwin had once been in Turchis Inkpen's office at the bottom of Crown Square, Hambridge, but never in the bedroom which Inkpen rented on the top floor of the same building. It had been for seventy or eighty years a building of four squat stories, but a new landlord, seeing the architectural development of the town as a local metropolis, and determined to join in it as a minimum of expense, had knocked the two lower stories into one, fronted them with fawn-coloured terracotta, and produced a lofty shop whose rent exceeded the previous rent of the entire house the landlord knew that passers-by would not look higher up the facade than the ground floor and that therefore any magnificence above that level was merely wasted the shop was in the occupation of a tea dealer who gave away beautiful objects such as vases and useful objects such as tea trays to all purchasers ingpens office and a solicitor's office were on the first floor formerly the second the third floor was the headquarters of the Hambridge and District Ethical Society. The top floor was temporarily unlet, save for Ingpen's room. Nobody except Ingpen slept in the building, and he very irregularly. The latch key for the side door was easy to choose in the glittering light of the latest triple-jetted and reflected gas lamps, which the corporation, to match the glories of the new town hall, had placed in Crown Square. The lock, strange to say, worked easily. Edwin entered somewhat furtively, and, as it were, guiltily, though in Crown Square and the streets and the other squares visible therefrom, not a soul could be seen. The illuminated clock of the old town hall at the top of the square showed twenty-five minutes to four. Immediately within the door began a new, very long and rather mean staircase, with which Edwin was acquainted. He closed the door, shutting out the light and the town, and struck a match in the empty building. He walked into Hambridge from Bursley, and as soon as he began to climb the stairs, he was aware of great fatigue, both physical and mental. The calamity to Ingpen had almost driven Auntie Hamp's out of his mind. It had not, however, driven Minnie out of his mind. He was gloomy and indignant on behalf of both Ingpen and Minnie. They were both victims. Minnie was undoubtedly a fool, and he was about to learn, perhaps, to what extent Ingpen had been a fool. Each footstep sounded loud on the boards of the deserted house. Having used several matches and arrived at the final staircase, Emily wondered how he was to distinguish Ingpen's room there from the others without trying keys in all of them till he got to the right one. But on the top landing he had no difficulty, for Ingpen's card was fastened with a drawing-pin onto the first door he saw. A match burnt his fingers and expired just as he was shaking out a likely key from Ingpen's bunch. And then, in the black darkness, he perceived a line of light under the door in front of which he stood. He forgot his fatigue in an instant. His heart leaped. A burglar? Or had Inkpen left the gas burning? Inkpen could not have left the gas burning, since, according to Albert Bembo, he'd been in Bursley all afternoon. With precautions, and feeling very desperate and yet also craven, he lit a fresh match, and managed quietly to open the door, which was not locked. As soon as he beheld the illuminated interior of the room, all his skin crept and flushed as though he had taken a powerful stimulant. A girl reclined asleep in a small basket lounge chair by the gas fire. He could not see her face, which was turned towards the wall and away from the gas jet that hung from the ceiling over an old desk. But she seemed slim and graceful, and there was something in the abandonment of unconsciousness that made her marvellously alluring. Her hat and gloves had been thrown onto the desk and a cloak lay on a chair. These coloured and intimate objects, extensions of the venetable personality of the gull, had the effect of delightfully completing the furniture of a room which was in fact rather bare. A narrow bed in the far corner, disguised on a green rug as a sofa, a green square of carpet showing the unpolished boards of the sides, a desk and three chairs, a primitive hanging wardrobe in another corner, hidden by a bulging linen curtain, a portmanteau, a few unframed prints on the walls, an alarm clock on the mantelpiece. There was nothing else in the chamber where Inkpen slept when it was too late, or he was too slack to go to his proper home. But nothing else was needed. The scene was perfect. The girl rendered it so. An immense envy of and admiration for Inkpen surged through Edwin, who saw here the realisation of a dream that was to marriage what poetry is to prose. Yngpe might rail against women and against marriage in a manner exaggerated and indefensible, but he had at any rate known how to arrange his life and how to keep his own counsel. He had all the careless masculine freedom of his condition, and in the background this exquisite phenomenon. The girl, her trustfulness, her abandonment, her secrecy, that white ear peeping out of her hair, were his. It was staggering that such a romance could exist in the five towns of all places. Rewebin had the vague notion, common to all natives, that his own particular district fell short of full human nature in certain characteristics. For example, he could credit a human nature dying for love in Manchester, but never in the five towns. Even the occasional divorces that gave piquancy to life in the five towns seemed to lack the mysterious glamour of all other divorces. He thought, was it because he was expecting her that he sent me? Perhaps the desk was only a blind, and he couldn't tell me any more. Anyhow, I shall have to break it to her. He felt exceedingly awkward and unequal to the situation so startling in its novelty. Yet he did not wish himself away. As timidly, hat in hand, he went forward into the room. The girl stirred and woke up to the creaking of the chair. "'Oh, Tut! she murmured, between sleeping and waking. Emmy did not like her voice. It reminded him of the voice of the nurse whom he had just left. The girl, looking round, perceived that it was not Tertius Ingpen who had come in. She gave a short, faint scream, then gathered herself together, and with a single movement stood up, perfectly collected, and on the defensive. "'It's all right, it's all right,' said Edwin. Uh, "'Mr. Ingpen gave me his keys and asked me to come over and get some papers he wants. I hope I didn't frighten you. I've no idea.' "'She was old.' She was old. That is to say, she was not the girl he had seen asleep. Before his marriage, he would have put her age at thirty-two. But now he knew enough to be sure that she must be more than that. She was not graceful in movement. The expression of her pale face was not agreeable. Her gestures were not distinguished. And she could not act her part in the idyll. Moreover, her frock was shabby and untidy. But chiefly, she was old. Had she been young... Edwin would have excused all the rest. Romance was not entirely destroyed, but very little remained. He thought disdainfully, and as if resenting a deception, is this the best he can do? And the five towns sank back to his ancient humble pace in his esteem. The woman said, with a silly nervous giggle, "I I called to see Mr. Ingpen. he wasn't expecting me, and I suppose while I was waiting I must have dropped off to sleep. It might have been true, but to Edwin it was inexpressibly inane. She seized her hat and then her cloak. I'm sorry to say Mr. Ingpens had an accident, said Edwin. She stopped, both hands above her head, fingering her hat. An accident? Nothing serious? Oh, no, I don't think so, he lied. A machinery accident. They had to take him to the Klaus Hospital at Bursley. I've just come from there. She asked one or two more questions, all the time hurrying her preparations to leave. But Edwin judged with disgust she was not deeply interested in the accident. True, he had minimised it, but she ought not to have allowed him to minimise it. She ought to have obstinately believed that it was very grave. I do hope you'll soon be all right, she said, snatching at her gloves and going to the door. Good night. She gave another silly giggle, preposterous in a woman of her age. Then she stopped. I think you're gentleman enough not to say anything about me being here, she said rather nastily. It was quite an accident. I could easily explain it, but you know what people are. What a phrase! I think you're gentleman enough. He blushed and offered the required assurance. Can I let you out? He started forward. No, thanks. But you can't open the door. Yes, I can. The stairs are all dark. Please don't trouble yourself, she said dryly in the term of a woman who sees a fence in the courtesy of a male travelling companion on the railway. He heard her steps diminuendo down the stairs. Closing the door, he went to the window and drew aside the blind. Perhaps she would pass up the square. But she did not pass up the square, which was peopled by nothing but meek gas lamps under the empire of the glowing clock in the pediment of the old town hall. Where had she gone? Where did she come from? Her accent had no noticeable peculiarity. Was she buried, or single, or a widow? Perhaps there was hidden in her some strange and seductive quality which he had missed. He saw the slim girl again reclining in the basket chair. After all, she was a woman, and she had been in Inkpen's room waiting for him. Later, seated in front of the open drawer in the old desk, gathering together letters and photographs, photographs of her in adroitly managed poses taken at Oldham, letters in a woman's hand. He was penetrated to the marrow by the disastrous and yet beautiful infelicity of things. The mere sight of the letters, of which he forbore to decipher a single word, even a signature, nearly made him cry. The photographs were tragic with the intolerable evanescence of life. By the will of Turch's Ingpen, helpless on the bed in the hospital, these documents of a passion or of a fancy were to be burned. Why? Was it true that Ingpen was dying? Better to keep them. No, they must be burnt. He rose, and with difficulty burnt them by installments in a shovel over the tiny fender that enclosed the gas stove. The room was soon half full of smoke. Why had he deceived the woman as to the seriousness of Ingpen's accident? To simplify and mitigate the interview, to save himself trouble. That was all. Well, she would learn soon enough. His eye caught a print on the wall above the bed, a classic example of the sentimentality of Marcus Stone. "'Departing Cavalier, Drooping Maiden, Terraced Garden. "'It was a dreadful indictment of the Tertius Ingpen "'who talked so well with such intellectual aplomb, "'with such detachment and exceptional cynicism. "'It was like a ray exposing some secret, sinister corner in the man's soul. "'He'd hung up that print because it gave him pleasure. "'Poor chap! "'But Edwin loved him. "'He decided that he would call again at the hospital before returning to Artie Hamp's impossible that the man was dying if the doctor or matron had thought he was in danger they would have summoned his relatives he might be dying he might be dead he must have immediately feared death or he would not have imposed upon edwin such an errand what simple touching amiable trust in a friend's loyalty the man had displayed edwin put up the gas stove which exploded lit a match gave a great yawn put up the gas and began the enterprise of leaving the house 3. Look here, I must have some tea now, said Edwin curtly, and yet appealingly to Maggie, who opened the door for him at Artie Habs. It was nearly eight o'clock. He had been to the hospital again, and, having reported in three words to Ingpen, whose condition was unchanged, had remained there some time. But he had said nothing to Ingpen about the woman. At six o'clock the matron had come into the room, and the nurse, thenceforward until seven o'clock, when she went off duty, was a changed girl. Edwin slightly knew the matron, who was sympathetic but strangely pessimistic, considering her healthy full figure. "'The water's boiling,' answered Maggie in a comforting tone, and disappeared instantly into the kitchen. Edwin thought, "'There are some things that girl understands.' She'd shown no curiosity, no desire to impart news, because she had immediately comprehended that Edwin was, or imagined himself to be, at the end of his endurance." Maggie, with simple and surpassing wisdom, had just said to herself, "'He's been out all night, and he's not used to it.' For a moment he felt that Maggie was wiser and more intimately close to him than anybody else in the world. "'In the dining-room,' she called out from the kitchen. And in the small dining-room there was a fire. It was like a living, welcoming creature. The cloth was laid, the gas was lighted. On the table was beautiful fresh bread and butter. A word, a tone— A glance of his on the previous evening had been enough to bring back the dining-room into use. Happily, the wind suited the chimney. He had scarcely sat down in front of the fire when Maggie entered with the teapot. And at the sight of the teapot, Edwin felt that he was saved. Before the tea was out of the teapot, it had already magically alleviated the desperate sensations of physical fatigue and moral weariness, which had almost overcome him on the way from the hospital in the chill and muddy dawn. "'What will you have to eat?' said Maggie. "'Nothing I couldn't eat to save my life.' "'Perhaps you'll have a bit of bread and butter later?' said Maggie blandly. He shook his head. "'How is she?' "'Worse,' said Maggie. "'But she slept.' "'Who's up with her there now?' "'Minnie?' "'No, Clara.' "'Oh, she's come. "'She came at seven. Edwin was drinking the divine tea. After a few gulps, he told Maggie briefly about Tertius Ingpen, Saying that he'd had to go on business for himpen to Hanbridge. Are you all right for the present? She asked after a few moments. He nodded. He was eating bread and butter. You had any sleep at all? He mumbled, munching. Oh yes, a little. She answered cheerfully, leaving the room. He poured out more tea, and then sat down in the sole easy chair for a minute's reflection before he went going upstairs and thence to the works. Not until he woke up did he realize that there had been any danger of his going to sleep the earthenware clock on the mantelpiece a birthday gift from clara and I, albert showed five minutes past eleven putting no reliance on the cheap horrible clock he looked at his watch which had stopped for lack of winding up the fire was very low his chief thought was it can't possibly be eleven o'clock because i haven't been down to the works and i haven't sent word i'm not coming either He got up hurriedly, and had reached the door when a sound of a voice on the stairs held him still, like an enchantment. It seemed to be the voice, eloquent, and indeed somewhat Church of England, of the Reverend Christian Flowerdew, the new superintendent of the Bursley Wesleyan Methodist Circuit. The voice said, I do hope so, and then offered a resounding remark about the weather being the kind of weather that, bad as it was, people must expect in view of the time of year. Maggie's voice concurred. As soon as the front door closed, Edwin peeped cautiously out of the dining-room. "'Who was that?' he murmured. "'Mr. Flowerdew. She wanted him. Albert sent for him early this morning.' Maggie came into the room and shut the door. "'I've been to sleep,' said Edwin. "'Yes, I know. I wasn't going to have you disturbed. They're all here.' "'Who are all here?' "'Clara and the children. Auntie asked to see all of them. They waited in the drawing-room for Mr. Flowerdue to go.' Bert didn't go to school this morning, in case, because it was so far off. Clara fetched the others out of school, except Rupi, of course. He doesn't go. Good heavens! I never came across such a morbid lot in my life. I believe they like it. Clara could be heard marshalling the brood up the stairs. You'd better go up, said Maggie persuasively. I'd better go to the works. I'm no use here. What time is it? About eleven. I think you'd better go up. Does she ask for me? Oh, yes, all the time sometimes, but she forgets for a bit. Well, anyhow, I must wash myself and change my collar. All right, wash yourself, then. How is she now? She isn't taking anything. When Edwin nervously pushed open the bedroom door, the room seemed to be crowded. Over the heads of clustering children towered Clara and Albert. As soon as the watchful Albert caught sight of Edwin, he made a conspiratorial sign and hurried to the door driving Edwin out again. "'Didn't know you were here,' Edwin muttered. "'I say,' Albert whispered, "'has she made a will?' "'I don't know.' The bedroom door half opened, and Clara, in her shabby morning dress, glidingly joined them. "'He doesn't know,' said Albert to Clara. Clara's pretty face scowled a little as she asked sharply and resentfully, "'Then who does know?' "'I'd have thought you'd know,' said Edwin. "'Me? I like that. She hasn't spoken to me for months, has she, Albert? "'And she was always frightfully close about all these things.' "'About what things?' "'Well, you know.' "'It was a fact. Auntie Hampstead never discussed her own finance "'or her testamentary dispositions with anybody, "'and nobody had ever dared to mention such subjects to her.' "'Don't you think you'd better ask her?' said Clara. "'Albert thinks you ought.' "'No, I don't,' said Edwin with curt disdain.
1: "'Well, then I shall.'
0: Albert decided. "'So long as you don't do it while I'm there,' Edward said menacingly. "'If you want to ask people about their wills, you ought to ask them before they're actually dying. Can't you see you can't worry her about her will now?' He was intensely disgusted. He thought of Mrs. Hamp's bed, and of Tertius Ingpen's bed, and of the woman at Dead of Night in Ingpen's room, and of Minnie's case. And the base insensibility of Albert and Clara made him feel sick. He wondered whether any occasion would ever have solemnity enough for them to make them behave with some distinction, some grandeur. For himself, if he could have secured a fortune by breathing one business word to Auntie Hamps just then, he would have let the fortune go. "'There's nothing more to be said,' Clara murmured. In the glance of both Clara and Albert, Edwin saw hatred and envy. Clara especially had never forgiven him for preventing their father from pouring money into that sieve her husband— nor for Hilda's wounding tongue, nor for his worldly success. And they both suspected that either Maggie or Auntie Hamps had told him of Albert's default and the payment of interest, and so fear was added to their hatred and envy. They all entered the bedroom, the children having been left alone only a few seconds. Rupert, wearing a new blue overcoat with gilt buttons, had partially scrambled onto the bed. The pale, veiled hands of Auntie Hamps could be seen round his right hand, Rupert had grown enormous, and had already utterly forgotten the time when he was two years old. The others, equally altered, stood two on either side of the bed, Bert and young Clara to the right, and Amy and Lucy to the left. Lucy was crying, and Amy was benignantly wiping her eyes. Bert, a great lump of a boy, was to leave school at Christmas, but he was still ranked with the other children as a child. Young Clara sharply, and Bert heavily, Turn round to witness the entrance of their elders. Oh, here's Uncle Edwin! Edwin! Yes, Auntie! The moral values of the room were instantly changed by the tone in which Auntie Hamp's had murmured, Edwin. All the Bembos knew, and Edwin himself knew, that a personage of supreme importance in Auntie Hamp's eyes had come into the scene. The Bembos became secondary, and even Auntie Hamp's grasp of Rupert's hand loosened, and, having already kissed her, The child slipped off the bed. Edwin approached, and over the heads of the children and between the great darkening curtains, he could at last see the face of the dying woman, like a senile doll's face amid the confusion of wrappings and bedclothes. The deep-set eyes seemed to burn beneath the white forehead and sparse grey hair. The cheeks, still rounded, were highly flushed over a very small part of their surface. The mouth, always open, was drawn in, and the chin, still rounded like the cheeks, protruded. The manner of Auntie Hamp's noisy breathing, like the puzzled gaze of her eyes, indicated apprehension of the profoundest, acutest sort. "'Huh?' said she, in a somewhat falsetto voice, jerky and excessively feeble. "'I thought I'd lost you.' Her hand was groping about. "'No, no,' said Edwin, leaning over between young Clara and Rupert. "'She's feeling for your hand, Edwin,' said Clara. He quickly took her hot, brittle fingers. They seemed to cling to his for essential support. "'Have you been to the works?' Ardy Hamps asked the question as though the answer to it would end all trouble. "'No,' he said, "'not yet.' "'Ah, that's right, that's right,' she murmured, apparently much impressed by a new proof of Edwin's wisdom. "'I've had a sleep.' "'What?' I've been having a sleep, he repeated more loudly. Ah, that's right, that's right. I'm so glad. The children have been to see me. Amy, did you kiss me? Auntie Hamps looked at Amy hard as if for the first time. Yes, Auntie, and then Amy began to cry. Better take them away, Edwin suggested aside to Albert. It's as much as she can stand. The parson's only just gone, you know. Albert, obedient, gave the word of command, and the room was full of movement. Oh, children, children, Aunty Hamps appealed. Everybody stood stock still, gazing attendant. Oh, children, bless you all for coming. If you grow up as good as your mother, it's all I ask, all I ask. Your mother and I have never had a cross word, have we, mother? No, Auntie said Clara, with a sweet, touching smile that accentuated the fragile charm of her face. Never, since mother was as tiny as you are. Artie Hamps looked up at the ceiling during a few strained breaths, and then smiled for an instant at the departing children who filed out of the room. Rupert loitered behind, gazing at his mother. The mere contrast between the infant so healthy and the dying old woman was pathetic to Edwin. Clara, with an exquisite, reassuring gesture and smile, picked up the stout Rupert and kissed him, and carried him to the door, while Auntie Hamps looked at mother and son, ecstatic. Hedwin, yes, Auntie. They were alone now. She had not loosed his hand. Her voice was very faint, and he bent over her still lower in the alcove of the curtains, which seemed to stretch very high above them. Have you heard from Hilda? Not yet, by the second post, perhaps. It's about George's eyes, isn't it? Yes. She's done quite right, quite right. It's just like Hilda. I do hope and pray the boy's eyesight is safe. Oh, yes, said Edwin, safe enough. You really think so? She had the air of hanging on his words. He nodded. What a blessing. He sighed deeply with relief. "'Edwin thought. "'I believe her relations must have been her passion.' "'And he was impressed by the intensity of that passion. "'Edwin, has that girl gone yet?' "'Who?' he questioned, and added more softly. "'Minnie, do you mean?' "'His own voice sounded too powerful, too healthy, "'and dominating in comparison with her failing murmurs.' Auntie Hamps nodded. "'Yes, Minnie.' "'Not yet?' "'She's going?' Yes. Because I can't trust Maggie to see to it. I'll see to it. Has she done the Silvers, do you know? She's doing them, answered Edwin, who thought it would be best to carry out the deception with artistic completeness. She needn't have her dinner before she goes. No. No, Auntie Hap's face and tone hardened. Why should she? All right. And if she asks for her wages, tell her I say there's nothing due under the circumstances. All right, Auntie, Edwin agreed, desperate. Maggie, followed by Clara, softly entered the room. Auntie Hampson glanced at them with a certain cautious suspicion, as though one or other of them was capable of thwarting her in the matter of Minnie. Then her eyes closed, and Edwin was aware of a slackening of her hold on his hand. The doctor who called half an hour later, said that she might never speak again, and she never did. Her last conscious moments were moments of satisfaction. Edwin slowly released his hand. Where's Albert? he asked Clara, merely for the sake of saying something. He's taking the children home, and then he's going to the works. He ought to have gone long ago. There's a dreadful upset there. I suppose there is, said Edwin, who had forgotten that the fly-wheel accident must have almost brought Albert's manufactory to a standstill, and he wondered whether it was the family instinct or anxiety about Auntie Hamp's will that had caused Albert to absent himself from business on such a critical morning. I ought to go too, he muttered, as a full picture of a lithographic establishment masterless swept into his mind. Have you telegraphed to Hilda? Clara demanded. No. Haven't you? What's the use? Well, I should have thought you would. Oh, no, he said falsely mild. I shall write. He was immensely glad that Hilda was not present in the house to complicate still further the human equation. Maggie was silently examining the face obscured in the gloom of the curtains. Instead of remaining late that night at the works, Eben came back to the house before six o'clock. He had had word that the condition of Tertia's ink was still unchanged. Clara had gone home to see to her children's evening meal. Maggie sat alone in the darkened bedroom, where Auntie Hamp's, her features a mere pale blur between the overarching curtains, still withheld the secret of her, her soul's reality from the world. Even in the final unconsciousness, there was something grandiose which lingered from her crowning, magnificent deceptions and obstinate effort to safeguard the structure of society. The sublime obstinacy of the woman had transformed hypocrisy into a virtue, and not the imminence of the infinite unknown had sufficed to make her apostate to the steadfast principles of her mortal career. What about tonight? Abram asked. Oh, Clara and I will manage. There was a tap at the door. Abram opened it. Minnie, abashed but already taking courage, stood there, blinking with a letter in her hand. Ah, he breathed. Hilda's scrawling calligraphy was on the envelope. The letter read, Darling boy, George has influenza, Charlie says. Temp, a 102 anyway. So of course he can't go out tomorrow. I knew this morning there was something wrong with him. Janet and Charlie send their love. Your ever-loving wife, Hilda. He was exceedingly uplifted and happy and exhausted. Hilda's handwriting moved him. The whole missive was like a personal emanation from her. It lived with her vitality. It fought for the mastery of the household interior against the mysterious far-reaching spell of the dying woman. Your loving wife. Never before during their marriage had she written a phrase so comforting and exciting. He thought, my faith in her is never worthy of her. And his faith leaped up and became worthy of her. George has got influenza, he said indifferently. "'George, but influenza's very serious for him, isn't it?' "'Maggie showed alarm. "'Why should it be? "'Considering he nearly died of his at all, Reeves. "'Oh, then he'll be all right.' "'But Maggie had put fear into Edwin, a superstitious fear. "'Influenza indeed might be serious for George. "'Suppose he died of it. "'People did die of influenza. "'Auntie Hamps, Tertius Pen, and now George.' all these anxieties mingling with his joy and the thought of Hilda, and all the brooding rooms of the house waiting in light or in darkness for a decisive event. I must go and lie down, he said. He could contain no more sensations. Do, said Maggie. End of Part 1 of Book 3, Chapter 19